Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we read verses 11 through 16. Hear now the word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, in your word today, you set before us a vision of what it looks like, in part, for us to follow your son. Would you use your word by means of your spirit to spark in us a deeper trust, a deeper love, and a firmer commitment to live as your sons and daughters? Would you help us, O God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, One of the general principles of life, and uh, as I hear it, a popular line in country songs is that if you don't know what you stand for, you'll fall for anything. And it is so catchy, and it is so well-known that I think we are tempted to chuckle at it, maybe not take it seriously, or regard it as a cliché. And of course, when it's a cliché, then we don't take it seriously, and we chuckle at it. Uh, However, I I think, think of it from another angle. If all we do is oppose things, if all we do is speak against things, Uh, If all we do is shout down, if all we do is develop a reputation for disliking a person or a group or an idea, we also won't be able to last, right? It's it's not enough. It's it's too flimsy to have a worldview that only knows what it's opposed to and, and knows what it's against. The only way for someone to really be strong, especially for the long term, is for them to have something that they actually believe in and actually live for positively speaking. And so as Christians, we need more than to simply have an oppositional mindset and an oppositional reputation. We need to be known for having a positive vision of life, what the good life looks like, right? Something that we care about, something that we work towards, something that we pursue, something that our life is about, something we're laboring after. See, we can't always be fleeing. There are things that God also wants us to pursue. And if we don't, then eventually we're going to be worn down by all that we are opposed to because we're going to have nothing to offer in return and we will be ultimately about nothing. The Apostle Paul seems to know this and he applies this truth to the spiritual realm. He's writing to Timothy and it's like he's saying, yes, Timothy, there are things you need to flee from. There are things that you shouldn't approve of, but it takes more than that to make a Christian. Young man, 
pursue something as well. Catch the vision of what it means to make God and living for him the purpose and center of your life. In short, Paul wants Timothy to be everything the false teachers aren't. He uses these verbs here. He uses the verb flee. He uses the verb pursue. These are intense verbs, right? He's not just saying leave, and he's not just saying follow. He uses the words flee and pursue. And in the Greek, those are different words. They're intensive words. And here he's telling him to live in both directions, intentionally in both directions. He is supposed to exert himself in fleeing from the vices that, he's, that we're going to talk about. And he is telling him that he needs to exert energy pursuing godliness. So he's supposed to be sort of fending off the enemy with one hand, and he's supposed to be pursuing the good with the other. It's like Paul saying, you have to do both, right? He's saying, he's saying, be negative, resist this, flee from this, but then be positive and pursue this. And what Paul says here has the makings of a, of a healthy spiritual life. This, there, is, there is life advice here for anybody who wants to be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl of God. And that's what, that's what Paul calls Timothy in verse 11. He calls him a man of God. Do you want to be a man of God? Do you want to be a woman of God? Well, look at these three points this morning. First, flee from godlessness. Second, pursue godliness. And then third, pursue God. Uh, I think this is a good summary of what Paul says in these verses. But let's look more closely at them. Uh, first, he says, flee from godlessness. The way Paul says this in verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. It's a pretty simple phrase. Honestly, uh, think of what... Paul means here by these things. He means, and you have to look back at the previous weeks and see what we've been looking at, but he means all of these problems that the false teachers have embraced and created. Um, over the course of this letter, Paul has addressed a number of problems. In fact, as I was looking over this letter of 1 Timothy again, I was kind of surprised to see the number of problems in the Ephesian church that Paul is helping Timothy to address. Let me just remind you of some of them. Vain discussions and confident assertions based on ignorance. Misuse of the law of Moses. Living lives of disobedience and sexual immorality. Lying and embracing falsehood. Departing from the faith. Embracing false teaching. Forbidding marriage. Forbidding foods. Misunderstanding the goodness of creation. Embracing irreverent and silly myths. Refusing to provide for your own household, laying hands on someone too quickly, teaching contrary to the words of Jesus, picking fights and quarreling, living discontentedly and being greedy and materialistic. I don't know about you, but I forgot that we covered this much negative material in this book. But Paul is dealing with a guy who needs to deal with a lot of difficult issues. And Paul is, is telling Timothy, all of this is nightmare territory, flee from it. Don't you get sucked into the very things that have been pulling others in. Get away from this, whatever it is. You've, you've seen how it works its way out in the lives of those false teachers. You want nothing to do with it. And all of the above is the sort of thing that a Christian should be mortifying. They are the things that a Christian should be putting to death in his own heart. When we talk about mortification, it's kind of a big word, uh, you may wonder, what does that mean? 
You may hear the word mortify and you think that's what you are when you're embarrassed of something, right? You're mortified. Uh, well, when we use the word mortification, we're actually, we should, it's something that we should be seeking in our own lives. We actually get the word from, from Romans 8.13. Paul uses this language. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that phrase there, put to death, that is the word mortify. That's mortification. And he's saying, put to death the deeds of the body. He's not saying don't physically do anything. He's talking about sin. He's talking about sin in your lives. Uh, John Owen, uh, Puritan writer, he wrote perhaps the, the, the definitive book on this subject, a book perfectly titled The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, he talks about the sort of strategies. He's writing this book for young men, which is kind of funny to think about it today because even preachers like me who've read the Puritans before pick up John Owen and we go, this is a challenging read. And I just love reading these Puritans and going, now, those of you older Christians don't really need this, but this is for the simpletons among you. And then you read it and go, oh, no, I'm a simpleton. Uh, I'm struggling to understand this. But but the book is very, in spite of all the things I just said, the book is very readable. Uh, But in that book, Owen says this. He says, the only sin that can be put to death is forgiven sin. So he says, in in other words, a sin that has been taken to Jesus and laid at the foot of the cross, that is the kind of sin that we can engage with as Christians. It's the kind of sin that we can put to death. And so what does that look like to lay something at the foot of the cross? It looks like the confession of our sins. It means going to God and saying, I am wrong. I have been wrong. I've done wrong. And then it looks like hoping in and resting in Jesus and his work and not constantly trying to come back and be the sort of people that really we know we ought to be. And on that basis, we find hope by looking at ourselves and looking at our own hearts. That's the mistake that we easily make. To lay sin at the foot of the cross means that we walk away from it, that we no longer try to be the one that, well, we're the one that's dealing with it instead. He says, no, you must definitively give it to Jesus. It must belong to him. You need to know this. You are ill-equipped on your own to deal with your own sin. You can't, you can't forgive your own sin. You can't even defeat your own sin. Christ has to defeat your sin. You can't fight whatever sin you're coping with. You cannot fight it on your own. It is not a matter of willpower. You may tell yourself that. You may say, it's a matter of willpower. I don't have the willpower to take on this sin. You take that sin to the cross. Because once we are free from the power of the condemnation that comes from our sin, then here's what God does. He puts us in a position where we are able to put to death the remaining sin in our own hearts. But it has to be his first. It has to belong to him first. He has to be the one that has been given it so that he can put it to death for you. So the only sin that can be defeated is a forgiven sin. If we don't start there, then everything else you hear this morning is moralism. If we don't start there, then everything else you're going to hear is me saying, hey, shape up your life. Do your very best. Try to be good people and maybe you'll find peace with God and then maybe you'll find some victory in your life. And so you've got to hear the gospel side. You have to hear how gospel-centered this actually is. God does the work. One of the things Owen also says is be careful not to speak peace to your own soul that Jesus himself has not first spoken. 
We are very quick to speak peace to our own soul, but maybe we haven't actually taken our sin to Jesus. Uh, we are so habitually used to sinning, perhaps, that we sin, and we don't even confess anymore. It's possible to get to that place. It's, it's possible to get so hard-hearted that we don't do that. We do not have the right to speak peace to our own soul for sins that we haven't even carried to the cross. Only the peace that God speaks is a peace that we should listen to. That's why we have to center our fight around Christ. It's why we have to center our fight around the cross, not around ourselves, and not our own willpower. Those are very different places to approach our sin from. So what's mortification then? You know, I just said you can't eradicate your sin. You certainly can't do it on your own. Owen says that mortification is this. He says it is a habitual, that means we're doing it over and over again, repetitively, It is a habitual, successful weakening of sin that involves constant alertness and warfare and contention against the sin that remains and rears its ugly head. Yeah, I mentioned, I think it was last week, I mentioned D-Day and V-E Day. I think when we were in Sunday school and we were talking about Romans chapter 7. And we see in Romans 7 that Paul is still contending with his sin, even though it is forgiven sin. Paul is actually talking about the experience of mortification, I think, in Romans chapter 7. And we talked about the fact that sin continues to rear its ugly head. It's been definitively dealt with, and yet in this life, it still fights back because we haven't hit VE day yet. The the shores have been stormed, the victory has been won, and yet there are still remnants of fighters who are straggling behind that are being dealt with. And that's what the sin is that we're talking about here. And so, so part of the battle, according to Owen, looks like this. We need to see our sin. Right? If we're blind to our own sin, there's certainly no battle that's going to be taking place. If we don't know that there's a fight happening at all. He says we need to feel the guilt of our sin, which is our least favorite part, I think. We need to feel the guilt of our sin. And then he says we need to desire to be delivered from our sin. So it's not just that we want the guilt lifted, but, he, but he, in essence, Owen is saying it's not enough to just desire that we get away with what we've done, but he says we need to actually desire that it be gone from our practice. We need to desire that it be gone from our hearts. We need to desire that it be gone from our desires. And so the picture here is of a, a life and death struggle where we are, are meant by the Spirit's power to wrestle our sin to the ground and see it dead and bloody under our knives. That does not happen effortlessly. You know, if you have an enemy who is really set on destroying you, genuinely trying to kill you, it does you no good to try to talk your way out of the problem. If they are determined to kill you, you don't talk your way out of the problem. Uh, Winston Churchill once said this in a, a different context. He said, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And that's why... The only sin we can defeat is forgiven sin that Jesus has stripped of its power and dealt with once and for all. Because stripped of its power to condemn, here's what happens. Our sin is in its death throes. But then our enemy still in its death throes can still be a very horrible enemy to deal with. Now, Some of you here may even be thinking to yourself, my sin doesn't feel like it's in its death throes. <laughs> Uh, it feels like my sin has me on the ropes. If you have taken this sin to Jesus, if you've set your eyes on Christ, if, you, if your hope is in him, then, then whether you feel it or not, this sin has been dealt with by the Savior. And a forgiven sin is a sin that has been stripped of its power. 
no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. With temptation, with forgiveness, temptation is transformed into an occasion where you talk to yourself and where you talk to your sin and you say, you have been answered and dealt with by the perfect blood of the Son of God. You may rise up and tempt me, but because Jesus has removed your fangs, I'm not afraid to fight you. I'm not afraid to fight you. Your your fangs have been removed, sin. We can say that because of Jesus. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, "Put put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice that he doesn't aim for for the arms. He doesn't aim for the feet. He aims for the head right here when he says this, right? He says, put to death those desires, right? He, He goes to the heart of the matter. And I say this again. He's not saying to us merely stop doing bad things. He's not moralizing us. He's getting underneath of that, and he's saying, put to death even your evil desire and your impure thoughts. Don't don't be satisfied with just good behavior. He's saying, God has stripped your sin of its power. Now pursue actual heart change by God's grace, because now you're free to do it in a way you weren't before. Because before you were encumbered by guilt. Before you were frozen by your guilt. And now he says, the fangs of sin have been torn out. One more thing. When you flee from something, you don't tolerate it. You don't make room for it and you don't manage it. Many Christians decide that they are going to be realists about their sin. And so they accustom themselves to their sin and they decide that they're going to manage their sin. Uh, right? We tolerate a little of it. Right? We, we hope to see sin occupy less and less of our hearts and our minds, and yet we think we have to be realistic about it. We say, ah, it's going to surface again. And so we rationalize, right? It won't go away, so I'll give sin a little place in my heart. Uh, I'll manage it. I'll put it right over here. I won't let it out very often. Uh, I'll gossip, but only when I do prayer requests. I'll, I'll hate my neighbor, but only deep down. And then I won't act out on it. Uh, I'll live with lustful thoughts, but I'll only act out on it occasionally. I'll treasure other things above God, but I'll still do all the religious things so he knows that he's still important to me. Um, that's not what Paul says, is it? Right? He, says, he says, young man, flee from these things, put them to death, don't manage them, kill them. So what does fleeing from these things look like? Well, you know, we've seen it already, haven't we? Um, being forgiven, bring our, bringing our forgiven sins before the Lord. Uh, hating our sin. Humbly asking God for victory. When we see it rise up in our own hearts, we rise up against it. We set our eyes on Jesus. We only let our peace that's spoken to us be peace that comes to us from Christ. Not any self-focused peace. So... Notice that there's no moment this side of glory where we get to finally and definitively say, that's when you finally stop fighting. Right? He doesn't tell Timothy to get to that place. Instead, he sees Timothy engaged in an ongoing battle. He sees it being something that he's constantly dealing with. No, 
Sin continues in this life, and it is never fully destroyed in this life. It eventually comes back to fight another round again. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying, sin is like a zombie that keeps coming back. I didn't know Sinclair Ferguson knew what zombies were. Uh, As long as we're living in this life, we should expect that. That should be our expectation. And yet he doesn't say, settle for it. All right, the Apostle John reminds us that if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, so what God is calling us to, it, it's, it's funny to say it. He's calling us to perfection, and he's not expecting perfection. He's calling us instead to follow Jesus and keep repenting. So my, my question is, are you ready to take your sin seriously? Um, that's what Paul is calling Timothy to. It, he's calling Timothy to it, and because Timothy's a leader in the church, he's actually calling the Ephesians to it as well. He's calling his whole church to do this. And so that's what Paul says, and he calls us to it. Paul says, flee from godlessness. Now, I already mentioned this need for us to have more than just an avoidance of sin, more than just a, a mortification of sin. We also need something positive. We need, we need life as well, not just death, right? We're not just putting things to death. That's not our business. Instead, actually pursuing life. So what does Paul say to Timothy? Well, that's the second thing this morning. He says, pursue Godliness. Look at verses 11 to 14. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So here's the vision that Paul has for us. Put sin to death, sure, but then where are you going from there? What is your life about from there? He says, then pursue the life that God truly has for us. So just as much energy as we're putting into wrestling and subduing our sin in our own hearts, we should be working to develop virtue. We should yearn not to not, we should yearn for more than just to not be unlike God. Do you yearn to look like the Lord? See, that's what Paul is talking about here. Sin avoidance, but then growing in our own personal walk with God. And so as we increasingly know and love the Lord, we will love what is right and God will work to make us more like Jesus. So that's really what all these virtues are that Paul mentions here. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. He's painting us a picture of Jesus. He's painting us a picture of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, love Jesus enough that by God's grace, you want to be shaped into that image. You want to look like that man. You want to look like him, the one that you love. How do we do that? How do we pursue godliness? For starters, you don't put the cart in front of the horse. You do it by faith in Christ. If we try to be good, if we, if we try to become virtuous, if we try to work to become holy, and, and we start there, we are going to find ourselves climbing a vertical cliff without arms, without equipment, without anything. Uh, it's a fruit, fruitless endeavor because virtue is an issue of the heart. It's not ultimately, ultimately an issue of behavior, and it's not even an issue of the will. It's deeper than even the will because the will is guided by the heart. 
God never intended any of us to climb our way to godliness because we've got no power, we've got no ability to do it apart from Christ. And even if we could get ourselves an inch closer to godliness on our own, we would find that the standard is so high, we would be crushed by it. And so by God's grace, what is the plan? When we put our trust in Jesus, we're justified in God's sight. And what that means is that we have peace with God. We no longer fear his wrath. Jesus takes our sin. He gives us his own righteousness so that when God looks at us, it's like he's looking upon his own son. In heaven, every saint will be equally justified. In fact, that's even true right now. Every believer in Christ is equally justified. Um, There is not and there will not be one person who is more righteous in God's eyes than another. But that's not necessarily the case with our holiness, with our practice, with our sanctification. So in this life, we're called to pursue a holiness and it's a different situation. Because in this life, there are some people who are more sanctified than others. There are some people who are more holy than others. There are some people in this room who are more holy than the person sitting next to them. Um, Some people in this room have pursued godliness and have become more holy in practice and in their disposition and in their hearts and in the way they treat others and in the way that they see other people than the person that's sitting next to them, right? And so all Christians are equally saved, but some walk more closely with Christ than others do. Some Christians display so many fruits of the Spirit, it's like you can just see the holiness coming off them. And some of us feel like we're just barely pulling it off. By God's intention, it's that all of us, whatever place we find ourselves in this moment, that we should be pursuing this incremental change. That, that, that forgiveness, that forgiven sin becomes subdued sin, and it's replaced by growing love and grace, grace that people start to notice in their lives. One of the ways that you know the Lord is shaping you and changing you is that you're thinking more and planning more about the ways that grace could manifest in your own life than you are about eradicating sin. Uh, where you're actually thinking more about pleasing him with your life than what you're going to do about how you're not pleasing him. And this is God's design. Some, some Christians will look more like Jesus than others by degrees in this life. By God's grace... Slowly over time, we start to think more like Christ, love more like Christ, act more like Christ. As we study the word, as the scripture, as the spirit moves in our hearts, as we fellowship with other believers, as we seek God together, as we handle conflict in godly ways, here's what happens. We love Jesus such that God starts to change us so that we don't just love him, but we reflect him. And when other people look at us, they can see it. So that's, that's the plan. Not just that we flee from sin, not just that we put sin to death, but that we actually pursue godliness. Third this morning, Paul is pressing Timothy and all of his readers to not just pursue godliness, but to actually pursue God himself. Um, He uses this phrase here. He says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life. He's telling us to not just pursue godliness as if it's some abstract character trait that we can develop instead he's saying to pursue god himself because even even as we're meant to flee from sin we're meant to put a great distance between us and sin christ came in order to close the distance between us and the creator Uh, this is the god that we were made to know we were created to know The, the reason why 
you and I are, are here right now at this moment is because we were made by a creator who is sovereign and powerful, so powerful that he could speak and stars would come into existence, that, that his, his very words would cause clouds to form and bring water onto the earth, that he could imagine massive mountains so high that it would take us days to climb them, and, and valleys and, and jungles so beautiful and full of life that it would take, just takes your breath away. And he could make them simply by an act of the will. This God, with his power, made us in his image, fearfully and wonderfully. And he put us on this earth to be his representatives. He made us to reflect his authority. He made us to reflect his rule. He made us to reflect his character. He made us to act as a mirror of him so that his glory could be seen in even more places. He made us to know him. He made us to be filled up by him. He made us so that we would never be satisfied with anything, any person, any relationship, any, any job, any money, any toy, any meal, any idol, anything. And everything else was designed on purpose to dissolve like ashes in our mouths. He made us so that we would never be satisfied in our souls until we take hold of him. He made us for that. He made us so that we would feel restless and listless and joyless apart from him. He made us to know him. He made us to have union with him. He made us so that our hearts would be knit together with him and so that we would come back to a better, superior Eden. We were made, in other words, to pursue God. Not just the idea, but the person. We were made to know the person of God. And God has given us the means to do that. And, he, and it's not by our own strength. It's by his strength. What has he done? He's given us the blueprint for knowing him. He's given us his word so that we could know him well. He expended the care and revealed himself to us in his word. What does Paul say this morning in verse 15? He says, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You have this really lofty praise of God that, 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 that Paul is setting forth here. And, and the God that he's talking about here is he's unknowable and he's unapproachable Unless, by an act of the will, he shows himself to us. Unless he decides to pull back the curtain. Unless he decides to let us see something. And, and Paul says, no one has ever seen him or can see him. We can't get at him without him condescending to us. And so we need him to speak. We need his word. We are absolutely dependent on him speaking to us. We're not so clever apart from the word of God. You might notice in this church, we, I hope you can see it. I hope it's evident that we have a high regard for the word of God here. And that isn't because the word of God is something to be worshipped. It's not an object of worship. The reason we have a high regard for the word of God here is, is that it's the way he's given us to know for sure what he's like and what he has to say to us. 
So we treasure the word for God's sake, not for its own sake. If the word of God didn't lead us to God, then it would be worthless. The Bible is not an end in itself. It's precious because it leads us to God, right? Without it, all we're doing is guessing and everybody's just sitting around going, well, I think the best thing to do is this. And I think the best thing to do is that. And meanwhile, you have the word that it's like God is saying to us, I don't want you to guess. I don't want you to guess. I want you to know me for sure. So he gives us the word so we don't have to do that. He's given us the word of God. He loves us so much. That's part of the blueprint that he's given to us. You know what he's also done, though? He's given us the sacraments. Uh, because he's unapproachable, because he's unknowable, he still gives us these visible, tangible emblems to minister faith to our hearts so that we have this tangible experience where we're putting the bread in our mouths, where we're taking the cup. He's, he does this for us. Because he wants us to know nearness and he wants us to have some tangible experience. Now, we're not touching God when we touch the sacraments, but here's what we are doing. We're receiving him spiritually and he's letting it happen through a physical channel. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's what he's giving to us in order so that we actually aren't just, so that we're not just separated from the physical, so that we're not just constantly experiencing something that is far away from our experience. Instead, he says, I'm going to come near. He's given us prayer. Because it isn't enough for us to know of him. It's not enough for us to read about him. Uh, you know, people in Reformed churches, very good usually at thinking about God, talking about God, reading about God, preaching about God. And yet, God wants us to know him. And he wants us to know him experientially. We, we ought to be reaching out, personally reaching out to him, speaking to him, opening our hearts to him, telling him of our sorrows, telling, telling him of our struggles. To know him is not to know about him. We were made to know God, not only to study him. See, God has given us these things that we need. He's given us the word. He's given us the sacraments. He's given us prayer. God ministers to us, and he gives us union with him in every way possible, physically, audibly and spiritually it's like from every direction and every dimension he is showing us i will not leave you or forsake you i will be with you i am here i am near he calls us to pursue him and he doesn't leave us without the means to do it and so as we veil ourselves of these means of, of knowing him here's what we find a keener sharper truer understanding not only of his character but of his heart towards us of his love for us in spite of our sin and in spite of our weakness because of Christ. And so the great pursuit means that we know his heart and we take hold of Christ and we find ourselves united to him. And we discover that now our, our souls are at home the way he always intended them to be. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you don't mean us to only study you to only know about you, but you call us to know you. And as we know you, you call us to yearn to be like you. So would you give us not only minds that know about you, but would you give us hearts that know you? Give us souls that reach out in prayer. Make us people who speak to you constantly. Help us to pray without ceasing, like Paul says in another place. Help us to experience what it means, body, mind, and soul to be united to you. And as you do that, Lord, would you transform us gradually?
progressively more and more into your image. Lord, make us holy. Help us to flee from sin. Help us to pursue godliness. We ask it in Jesus' name.